we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse, the fifth column. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I'm I'm very, very, very pleased to be here with you this week. This is a it's always wonderful to be able to join Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan, have our conversation, our weekly confab. Actually, we do this more than once a week, yeah, uh, most yeah. of the time. And if you are subscribed to our Substack, and you would you would know how to do that if you've been listening for a long time. Um, Wethefifth.substack.com. You can listen to those dispatches as well and spend even more time with us. And uh, gentlemen, I'm happy to see both of you. And I, I will introduce our guests from the outset, Shadi Hamid, who, Shadi, I think the last time I was with you was at a Templeton Foundation conference uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., which you wrote about a little bit in one of your pieces. Shadi was formerly at Brookings for a good long while, actually. And when I saw you, you had recently made the switch over to the Washington Post and um, are a columnist there, a member of the uh, opinion board. Um, And uh, it is great that you're able to join us, spend some time, break bread, talk to us a little bit about what you've been thinking about and writing about. Shani, um, what does that require yeah. of you to be on the uh, the um, editorial board at the Washington Post? I've always wondered what that is. I could ask Matt, but he bores me. I could tell you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because he did it in the Los Angeles Times, but that's a shittier newspaper than the Washington Post. So. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me. I've been a fan of the fifth column for a while. So. It won't be after this episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spoke too soon. But... Yeah, the editorial board, so it's about um, nine of us, and we are collectively responsible for coming out with the editorials that you see on the left side of the page if you're you're using the print version, and that's the kind of the view of the Washington Post. So you are one-ninth of that view. Yeah, I'm part of that. Okay. Yeah. And you write two or three a week. A lot of things. I write uh, on average. Um, we're expected to draft to be like lead drafters of one editorial uh, per week, and then I have my own column, which is around every other week. Michael Kinsley, when he was the uh, opinion editor of the LA Times, just before I showed up, he wrote a very uh, infamous memo internal. Oh, I've heard about it. Memo, yeah, no, it's uh, <laughs> if you've worked in an editorial board at a major newspaper, yep. you've probably seen this memo. Uh, it was uh, the precursor to a big like a managerial retreat, probably in Palm Springs. Um, And it sort of laid out, uh, and he was kind of coming in as an outsider from Slate into this place and sort of treating as this new creation, the opinion section of a newspaper, right? It's usually two pages, maximum three. These days, it's lucky if it's a one and a half. Um, And he's like, there isn't any part of the newspaper that is more cost ineffective than the editorial board. (laughs) Back then, I think there was like 15 people at the LA Times and, you know, the 15 people chasing a daily hole of maybe like, I don't know, 600 words, 800 words on a per word basis, per salary basis. It's on the, are you kidding me level? And he printed out this memo. It's hilarious. And also has some really interesting analysis of trends in the business and whatnot. And instead of taking it with him to Palm Springs or wherever the hell they went, Pasadena, some damn place, uh, he left it on the printer. (laughs) (laughs) This was early in his tenure and he never recovered and like lasted a year and a half because of it. I'm a big fan of his, by the way. He's, I I imagine he's, um, he's sick, 
right? Yeah, he's been sick for a while. Because um, he's yeah. he kind of disappeared, but he was he was amazingly talented and really interesting. And I loved when I was um, very young when I would be channel surfing, and then you'd see uh, Bill Buckley's firing line, and Michael Kinsley would be the be the um, the guy behind the lectern who never blinked. He was like he just yeah. would, would not blink. He would just stare like this, and I and he was the guy that that. Um, I always kind of agreed with then before um, I understood anything. <laughs> and then I started, I started uh, disagreeing with him as I understood more. But I, he's an amazingly talented, a great writer, a very funny guy. Um, and I always really enjoyed him. So. But, but apparently wrong about everything. Yeah, yeah, well, that's fine. That's Except fine. the cost ineffectiveness <laughs> of Shadi. I mean, that's why we had Shadi on tonight. Yeah. We're okay, well, look, I should say that one of the reasons I was brought on ostensibly was to try to spice up the editorial board and so part of what I'm, you know, I think it can be interesting. I think editorials are worth reading, and I would recommend to fifth column listeners to give it a shot and see what they think. For you, They might not like sh- it, though. You but. should, um, if you are, like, really tired of your job, uh, job at some point, you should just go, like, full Islamist and just pretend for, like, a week <laughs> and be like, I've had a change of heart, um, and I'm going to write some pretty intense stuff, and I'm just warning you guys. And just submit a Let's couple of, like, can... just just translate some editorials from Almanar and see see how they fly. It is a funny idea, like, what I would have to do to, like, actually get fired. I mean, it's not... It's pro- <laughs> like, how far could I really, like, push a bit like that? Yeah, yeah. I'd be like, I don't know. Honestly, we don't want to the, offend him. These days, I don't know. Honestly. You, you go pretty far. Judging that from means. the stuff that I see on Twitter from people who are, like, real humans... And not crazy bots with hammers and sickles in there. In there, would you see? That? But is that a hammer and sickle key? How does they get that in the thing? I can't figure this out. I I don't know, but I'm sure we could figure that out if we yeah, wanted try, to. Try it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do it right now. And I want to um, point out that I did send you, uh, Camille and Matt, a tweet today that was so insane. And it was only when I realized <laughs> their username. I followed up with you guys, pointing out the username, which is a portmanteau. Of things that uh, you know, I just not going to get along with these things. The the person's name there it was what was it? Islamo communist? I think I so. Like, yeah, oh, that seems, yeah. seems like a real bad mix. That's a nice combo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's precisely the sort of yeah. person you want to get. You want to get hot takes sure. from on Twitter. Sure, yeah. It's good for you. It's good for your health. It's going to be enlightening. Yeah. Um, as as I hope this conversation will be in general. Um, I mean, Shadi, there's plenty of stuff we could talk to you about, but as I mentioned earlier. When I saw you last, it was, I guess it was early October, um, shortly after things had gotten a bit crazy um, in, the, in the Middle East. And yep. you had shortly after wrote a column, which I think was perhaps the first one that you wrote under your own name uh, for WAPO. And it was a post about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and specifically about intellectual humility, which is not the sort of thing that you would expect someone to write about in this context. And you went on from there to write additional pieces about taking Hamas seriously, not merely disregarding them as evil, but but actually having a sober analysis. And I think that you kind of rounded out the initial trifecta with an appeal for a durable, workable ceasefire. And at the time, you were making an argument that this was something that could be attained. And this is early November. We are now a little further beyond that. And I believe that that, that post you had opened with, you know, Gaza is in, in a pretty bad place. Um, certainly things are worse now than they were then. The ceasefire is over now. And I'd, I'd be 
very interested in getting your take on kind of where things stand and specifically like what went wrong with the ceasefire. Yeah, yeah. So you're right. That first piece I wrote on intellectual humility, that was my debut column for the Washington Post. I had just started there just a week prior. So for me, a, a lot has happened in a very short period of time in my new job. And I remember actually one thing I noted in that first column was the day, the night before Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel, I was at a party in D.C., and I was talking to a journalist friend, and I, I'm, I told her half-jokingly that um, no one cares. Well, it wasn't a, actually a joke. It was true. I said something like, no one really seems to care about the Middle East anymore, and I look forward in my new job to focusing on other issues because there really <laughs> isn't an audience for Middle East-related topics. And I even remember when I I was a contributing writer at The Atlantic previously, it just, I didn't feel, it was just hard to make the case for Middle East pieces. And I had been writing primarily about culture, religion, domestic politics, the woke stuff, culture war. And I just assumed that I would continue along those lines. But now I'm just like full on Middle East. Um, I hope that'll change. I mean, we'll see how long this conflict goes. <clears throat> but it's been a, it's been a sort of, I'll just say it's been a weird time for me because a lot of my former allies on the anti-woke stuff. I don't like seeing myself as anti-woke, but a lot of people perceive me that way. And it's it's just been interesting that a lot of those folks are now on the opposite side mm. of me when it comes to Israel-Palestine. So I find myself even more politically and ideologically homeless than I was before. And it's been tough. I think that there have been you know, relationships, um, friendships that have been strained. And I like we can maybe talk about this, why so many of the anti-woke folks just are, in my view, excessively and unquestioningly pro-Israel in a way that I find really off-putting and unsettling. And I try to be respectful of that, of where they're coming from. And look, we all have our blind spots, and they probably think the same thing about me, like what happened to Shadi? He seemed so reasonable on the culture war stuff and speaking out against woke excess, but now he seems to be, you know, pretty pro-Palestinian. I don't, lo I don't love those labels, but mm -hmm. I do tend to lean in one direction more than another, and I, it's just worth being straight up about that. Um, so that's kind of like some of the mood music of how <laughs> I'm kind of engaging in some of these debates. And really sometimes like what I'll what I'll say publicly and in the kind of sometimes tense conversations I have with the with my former fellow travelers is listen, I'm not asking for a whole lot. I am asking though to to talk about Palestinians as if they're human beings. Even if you are like full throatedly pro Israel, how hard can it be to like not question the death tolls, to not like don't make a mockery out of the out of the Palestinians who die, just at least try to be cognizant of Palestinian grievances over the course of many decades. Um, there is something called the catastrophe in the Palestinian national memory, um, the Nakba, where about 700,000 Palestinians were, um, were forced to flee from their homes. And people can disagree about some of the specifics about how exactly that happened, but 
there is a long history of tragedy on the Palestinian side. So part of what I, you know, I want to be able to do is to just tell people, look, um, you know, there, Palestinians do have legitimate grievances over decades and you can't just ignore them. Um, and I, that's one of the reasons I was, I, I did come out in support of a ceasefire is because I just, at some point I couldn't really grasp the staggering human toll. It is really remarkable when you look at the numbers. I mean, more than 15,000 killed. Now, we might say that about third, a third of them are combatants and we don't actually know. But even if you say that a good portion of them are combatants, we're still talking about at least 10,000 civilians killed, uh, more than 6,000 children. And I just think at a very basic human level, we shouldn't talk about them as mere collateral damage. And we, we use this kind of default mantra of Israel should minimize civilian casualties. And even that feels very bloodless and clinical to me that we're talking about numbers, but we can't actually see them as fully fleshed human beings who should be protected. And that's one of the reasons that I felt at some point I had to think constructively about what a ceasefire could look like after being somewhat resistant or thinking that it was unrealistic or fantastical. And then what I said in that in that column was sometimes things start out sounding as if they're fantasies, but we have to do our best in good faith to to kind of put those proposals forward and see if they can gain traction. And I try to be more realistic than maybe other people, like friends of mine who are on the pro-Palestine activist side of things. They're calling for ceasefires, but not actually talking about Israel's legitimate security needs. You you have to be able to say something about Hamas. Uh, I don't think I don't think it's reasonable to expect Israel. <laughs> to just accept that Hamas will, you know, continue ruling or place, like, it is legitimate for, for Israel to want to, like, degrade and destroy Hamas's military capabilities after what Hamas did on October 7th. And that's where maybe I'm more on the realistic side, and I don't really see myself as one of these activists who just doesn't care about like Israel is also a democracy, so Israeli officials have to be accountable to voters. They have to be accountable to their own people. And the Israeli public is angry and furious. And we can say that maybe there is a kind of desire for vengeance, and I think it's totally understandable. But at the very least, I think Israel does have a right to defend itself. I just don't think it should be defending itself the way it has been. Um, so I tried to be very clear about that in my column and saying that, um, you know, Hamas, there's certain things that we should ask from Hamas that are non-negotiables, like releasing hostages, halting rocket fire, and that Israel, uh, Israel sh should be able to kill or target senior Hamas military commanders or anyone who was implicated in the October 7th massacres. Um, so that's, that's. And there's a lot there, obviously, that we can kind of unpack, but maybe I mean, that's just a good yeah, way to start the conversation. Th there's a there's a million things there. Um, let me start with this. Um, let's start with the the a conversation, a little bit of a conversation about culpability. And what I mean by that is, you know, back after the Iraq War started, and maybe about three, four, or five years in the Iraq War, there were a number of these debates about the number of people who died. Uh, the Lancet, you remember everyone remembers the Lancet report, all this stuff. 
And it just became a normal thing that people said the United States caused the death of, and then you'd fill in the number of people who died in Iraq, 100,000 people. Some people went a little crazy and went up to a million. And that was always at the feet of George W. Bush and the American coalition, as it were. Um, how much culpability would you assign to Hamas in a couple of ways? The labor left, or the left in Israel, particularly the Labor Party, was basically destroyed by the Second Intifada of Israelis that, you know, said our security concerns um, have gone so far out the window. And, you know, of course, you know, at the end of this, you have the, the withdrawal from, from Gaza. But you have about a thousand Israelis that are killed and killed in a way when you talk about people talking about Israel trying to minimize civilian casualties. It is most certainly true that Hamas is always trying to maximize civilian casualties. That's what what happened on October 7th. And it's what's happened so many times before. I mean, at least with Arafat, you had this idea that 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 the PLO or Fatah was, you know, willing to engage in some sort of negotiations. And of course, we get Oslo and all the problems that that come after that. When you invade in October 7th with no intention of holding territory, but with the intention of killing as many people as you can and kidnapping children, old women, you know, uh, men, soldiers, etc., everybody who was kidnapped and bringing them back to Gaza. Um, and now we're starting to hear some of the horror stories from the people that, that, that were released. What kind of culpability would you assign to Hamas, who clearly knew what the response would be? I mean, there's been some reporting that Sinwar and some of these people were surprised by, I, I can't imagine that this is true, they'd be surprised by the ferocity of the response. I mean, you listen to Hamas's propaganda, and you would imagine that the Israelis are eating babies for breakfast, Palestinian babies for breakfast, and then you couldn't say, well, I, I'm surprised by the ferocity of the response. When you see that, I mean, they clearly knew what they were doing and have said as much in interviews since that, you know, 1, 100, 1,000 forever October 7th, and we're going to keep doing this. Um, th that's their kind of sort of moral responsibility for visiting this upon their own people in some way. And I know we can talk about, you know, the tactics of the IDF, the Israeli Air Force, et cetera, but just in a broader way. I mean, would you assign a, a large majority of that culpability to the people who went on that pogrom and rampage on the 7th? Yeah, so when it comes, when it comes to Hamas, they... I really do hope that there will be a reckoning once the fighting stops where Palestinians can kind of look inward and express any anger they might have towards Hamas. And hopefully this won't be forgotten because I do think primary, like ultimately when you have your family members killed by Israeli strikes, I do think that Israel holds, Israel is, is responsible for those deaths because they have agency. We can't just say that Hamas went in and therefore Hamas provoked um, this military confrontation. Therefore, anything that Israel does in response is fair game and justified. Um, so I think there's well, a suppose kind that of- I would ask in a follow-up there, just, just to throw that in there so maybe you can answer this too, is what would that response, and how people say proportional or proportionate response, what would that be? What What are they allowed to do, which would inevitably kill some uh, civilians, right? Yeah. Well, so, so I, 
when we look at the the toll, and it's not just the number of people killed, but also just this destruction of civilian infrastructure, that in the northern part of the Gaza Strip, 50% of home, more than 50% of homes and buildings have either been damaged or destroyed. 1.7 million out of 2.2 million have been internally displaced. I mean, we're talking about really a massive humanitarian catastrophe. Even if we put aside the numbers who are killed, we tend to focus on that. But if we're talking about, um, you know, towns and cities being reduced to rubble, we are talking about um, the Gaza Strip becoming uninhabitable for a majority of Gazans. And we can talk about whether that's by design or not. I do think that part of Israel's approach in these conflicts is what some people have called an eye for a tooth, that you kind of inflict um, considerable damage you want, you want, because you want to restore deterrence. You want to be able to say to Palestinians, look, don't ever fuck with us again, otherwise you'll get this. Um, and we've seen that in Lebanon. I mean, Tom Friedman was actually one of the first um, journalists to kind of write about this in the context of Lebanon the 1980s, but again, more recently in 2006 in the war with Hezbollah there, that in some sense you do, Israel does try to level entire neighborhoods to send a very clear message, and that's part of its strategy. Um, but to go back to the Hamas question, because um, people will say, well, what about Hamas? And I think sometimes there is a risk of what might be called whataboutism in this regard. Hamas is a terrorist organization that doesn't care about Palestinian civilian life. And so for me, that goes without saying. And I just think that we should be holding Israel to a higher standard than the standard that we hold Hamas to because Israel is a, is a democracy because Israel is an ally to the United States, and because they have a professional military, and because they actually do have precision weapons that should be more precise than they have been, in my view. Um, and I don't think that we can say that Israel's response has been precise in light of the numbers that I just mentioned earlier. If we're talking about 1.7 million being internally displaced, that is not precision. Um, so but I isn't think the, isn't that the purpose of that is to minimize um, civilian casualties, telling people to move south. Yeah, I mean that that is part of it. But then the question is, what are they going to move back to when hostilities cease? I mean, Gaza City is the is the major city in the Gaza Strip, and Gazans will have nothing to return to in most of Gaza City. So I think that. That raises a lot of questions about the day after and what and the fact that Israel has refused to talk about a plan for the post-war period. So after this war with Hamas ends, as God willing, you know, I hope it will in the you know coming weeks or months, the fact that Israel doesn't actually have anything to say about that means that there isn't really concern concern about the future of civilians and what they have to live under and what they have to live with. So for me, that just, that, and that does, I think, contrast to how the U.S. has conducted itself in the U.S.-led war against ISIS. And even if you look at some of the targeting protocols, where we would, with ISIS commanders, for example, or Al-Qaeda, 
commanders, if we knew that their children were in the vicinity, we waited for a different time to attack in many of these circumstances, where Israel will sometimes target a platoon commander, even if they know dozens of civilians will be caught in the crossfire, as we saw in Jebelea refugee camp um, some um, more than a month ago now. Um, so I think that the fact, you can't just say, well, a Hamas commander is going to be killed, and therefore, if there are any civilians there, well, then so be it. Uh, and oftentimes Israel will say, well, we don't intentionally target civilians, we target the Hamas commander, but we can't control it if there's a lot of other people around. And I just I just don't find that to be very persuasive because ultimately for Palestinians, they don't really care what the intent is. It's It's cold comfort to them if the IDF is saying, well, we didn't mean to kill you, but you just happened to be killed. Right. Of course, in international humanitarian law, there is a qualitative difference between intentionally targeting and not intentionally targeting civilians. But if you do, if you kind of do a lot of bombing and you know civilians are going to be killed, the civilians are still dying either way. And I think sometimes there can be a lot of this kind of judicial and legal maneuvering where you have the military lawyers in the room and, you, and you're able to have plausible deniability. But in the end, Palestinians are being killed regardless. So I just don't know how much these sort of qualitative distinctions at the end of the day, if a lot of Palestinians are being killed, then a lot of Palestinians are being killed. Yeah, I want to get Hamas and I want to get Matt here, and mm. I want to brief thing just because I mentioned this for for people who pay to <laughs> to Substack, mentioned this. Um, uh, you know, Israel has for many years, and that is um, very very uh, documented in the book that I keep on mentioning, "Rise and Kill First by Ronan Bergman, fantastic book. Um, and I and I mentioned this uh, famous example of uh, Sheikh Yassin being at a, a with all the other Hamas command, uh, commanders in two thousand two or three in a building that they could have wiped out the entire leadership and they decided to do something, um, but it was in, in a place where there would be a lot of civilian casualties and they tried to do something that would minimize the civilian casualties and they did, didn't get any of them, um, knowing that they could have just collapsed the building and killed all of them. They've done this a lot in the past in that book, which is not a friendly book to the IDF in a lot of places, which is why uh, Rashid Khalidi said, oh, I love that book when I brought it up to him. And, and so I was like, oh, okay, that it's, it's it met your seal of approval. But in that sense, I think that, you know, wartime, Obviously, that that changes a lot. Sorry, Matt, to, to cut you off. Go ahead. Don't be. Um, the, so another way of looking at this, you mentioned earlier that um, Israel has the right to defend itself and to um, work towards the removal of Hamas as a governing entity in Gaza. If I'm if I'm misparaphrasing you, step on me. But I, I think I heard you say something like that. Um, so that kind of suggests the question of can that outcome be negotiated can that be something that happens not under the force of arms can you get hamas out of gaza without having to fight hamas in a heavily urban uh, civilian filled zone run very badly and without a lot of uh, care for humanity by a terrorist organization so part of the problem, problem is that Israel isn't clear about its ultimate goals in Gaza. So sometimes it says that it wants to degrade Hamas. Often it says it wants to eliminate or eradicate Hamas. And I think that actually matters a whole lot. 
because ending Hamas's rule in Gaza is different than eliminating Hamas. When I hear the word eliminate, I think of something much more total, much more thoroughgoing, and it does imply a lot more people being killed. And that's where there is a problem here that Hamas is not actually like ISIS. It's a mass movement that is intertwined in the broader Gazan population. We have to acknowledge that, frankly. And there are estimates of around 30,000 Hamas fighters. And then there are people who are affiliated with Hamas who may not be combatants. Then you, you add those numbers on. You can probably talk about hundreds of thousands of supporters and sympathizers of Hamas. So you can't actually erase Hamas off the face of the earth, earth because there's a broader membership and there's low-level cadres, mid-level cadres, people who have served in Hamas administrations in different ministries. So that's why I tend to prefer talking much more specifically about military commanders, then we can talk about the political leadership, then we can talk about the rank and file of the organization. But there is no way, to my at least to my understanding, where you can wipe out the entire membership of Hamas. To do that, you would basically need to embark on something of genocidal proportions. So let's and say that's what makes me really nervous. When people say wipe out, when they say level that place, when they say you got to just eradicate them, let's be very clear what we're talking about here. Because the, the Israeli military estimates that, and this is probably a little bit inflated, but five, uh, you know, as many as 5,000 Hamas fighters have been killed. Let's cut that down. If we say cut that down to 3,000, which seems more plausible to me, we're still talking about the vast majority of Hamas fighters who have not been killed. Like how, and Emmanuel Macron, the, the French president, I said something to this effect the other day where he said, if you want to wipe out every single Hamas fighter, it could take you 10 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think we have to, that's what makes me really nervous when we talk about a very totalizing goal that is simply not realistic. I would much prefer us talking about degrading Hamas's ability to attack Israel, to launch rockets, to actually be a threat to Israel. And that to me is something that you can measure in terms of military assets. You can actually see to what extent Hamas is able to launch attacks on, on Israel, and you can actually calculate that in a much more specific way. So I, that's just worth but, noting, so, because I think that Israeli officials are not careful in how they talk about these things. And, and they contradict um, each other, yep. uh, uh, for sure. Um, in your mind, could the more um, appropriate path of degrading as a goal, as opposed to eradicating, can that be done with negotiations, or does that have to be military operations in a heavy populated zone? Yeah, so I think there's, I think there can be an effort to negotiate this now. Whether Hamas will respond constructively is anyone anyone's guess, and I'm not very enthusiastic about that. But I would like to see Israel and the U.S. taking the high ground here and offering up. Um, offering up a kind of roadmap for, for what both sides might be willing to accept, to say that if Hamas agrees to give up power in Gaza, if it agrees to subject itself 
to the rule of the Palestinian Authority, and the PA is based in the West Bank, but there has been a lot of talk about having a kind of revitalized PA that can then be also responsible for governing in Gaza to say, look, if Hamas is willing to accept that, to give up power, and to agree to not attack Israel with rocket fire or through other military means, then Israel can seize its own bombardment of Gaza. That, that to me, is really at the heart of what a negotiated um, ceasefire could look like. And you might say, well, of course Hamas will say no. Well, then, so be, if Hamas says no, then Israel would then have the right to resume military operations against Hamas's military assets. But the fact that none of this has even been proposed, I think a lot is being left on the table. And we're saying that these things are unrealistic because Hamas is evil. It's a terror, which is all true. What Hamas did uh, on October 7th is evil. And we're, we're the more details that come out in terms of you know, rape and and um, and just like wanton massacres of innocent civilians, including at at the festival. We 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 know these details now, and they're just horrific to even think about. So we know these things, um, but I think that you have to ultimately Hamas does have control over hostages. You have to negotiate with terrorists if you want to release the hostages. And when people say don't you you can't negotiate with hostages, first of all, you throughout history, that's kind of who you do have to negotiate with sometimes. That's kind of the idea. You negotiate with your enemies, you negotiate with really bad people. And that's why I mean that's kind of obvious in a way, but we, we talk about this with quote unquote moral clarity that we can't talk to these people. But of course, Israel is already talking to Hamas through intermediaries in Qatar and Egypt, and that is already going on anyway. So that's that's kind of a red herring. So if it's going on, I mean, we can't say then that this isn't happening. We don't know if it's happening or not. Qatar and the, the other countries and the other intermediaries, whether they even be Egypt and you know, United States being involved, et cetera, we don't know what that looks like. Obviously, it's um, the height of bad faith to start by by um, stealing human beings uh, in a war crime and uh, taking hostages. That that itself is 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 the beginning of saying that you know we're not we're not people that you want to deal with in the traditional way, right? So, but the the thing that strikes me about this, Shadi, is that is that the way that you suggest dealing with this in the future. It kind of reminds me of the amazing amounts of criticism that Israel has gotten from the international community, particularly from, you know, every UN resolution condemning them every five minutes. And, you know, every person in Europe, every government in Europe, when there was a ceasefire on October 6th, the very kind of tenuous one, and the Israeli government was under the impression that Hamas and Sinwar wanted to actually make things better from this, from multiple, multiple sources that there, there was this kind of this, you know, kind of default thought that that Sinwar wanted to make things better for the Palestinian people. But you do have to do things for, as you said, Israel's security. And what that requires is um, not much movement between uh, the Gaza Strip and Israel itself, it means essentially walling it in. And that, when people say, well, Israel is not occupying Gaza because they left in 2005, is that the response to that is, is very quickly, well, no, but they have this hideous blockade and embargo. 
I don't understand what these people want because what you're saying s- sounds to me like the what what you would do is try desperately to prevent Hamas from arming themselves. We had Israel has not done uh, apparently a very good job of that. Uh, it could obviously be a lot worse, but they haven't done a, a perfect job of that, shall we say? But if we do, if that's what happens, right? That's the complaint of the international community for the past you know ten years, right? I mean, there's been things. I mean, there has been a, a you know a kind of a a piece that has been in you know in I don't know. Let's say let's say five years. You can protect Operation Protective Edge and all this stuff. You know, they come up and they happen here and there. When you say the 2006 Second Lebanon War, um, that the idea was to teach a lesson. Well, it seems to have worked on on its northern border in a way, hasn't it? I mean, Hezbollah has been uh, difficult as it always is, but you know they actually haven't. Um, they've been launching, launching rocket attacks and there's been villages in the north of Israel that have been evacuated, et cetera. But on top of all of this, I have to go back to one thing. You know, it is, these conversations exist and they happen only in this conflict because Hamas in particular wants them to happen. When one of the leaders of Hamas was asked on, it was not Al Jazeera, another uh, Arabic language network, why you don't build bomb shelters? Israelis, if you look at a map of Israel, look at Google Maps. There's a bomb shelter on every corner. You know where to go if if there's a rocket incoming. There's none of those. And the leader of Hamas said, well, we don't build them. You're right. And that's not our responsibility. That's the UN's responsibility. And they have made a situation that seems to want to maximize uh, uh, casualties. I mean, there's some suggestion of people that say that, that we are a nation of shahids, that we will always be a nation of shahids. That stuff is unnerving because you get to a point where you can't negotiate with anyone, as, as Matt points out, and what do you do short of bombing them into the Stone Age, which as, I mean, look, I have to say that all of this stuff makes me deeply uncomfortable too. I don't like seeing any of this stuff. I don't know what the alternative is. And if there is one that looks like it was on October 6th, it, no one's going to be happy about that either. And, it, it, you know, we had years of battering Israel for its policy towards Gaza, despite the fact that they weren't um, conducting many just unprovoked offensive operations into Gaza. Yeah, so I think one thing that is really worth emphasizing here is, so one way of looking at the current conflict is to start on, on October 7th. And, you know, that's obviously an understandable way to approach it, particularly from an Israeli perspective. Yeah since this was this was unprecedented in Israel's history um you know 1200 plus killed and so forth i mean that's that's never happened before but but i think that if we're talking about how to prevent future terrorism and you know my my priority in the way i try to approach any question around terrorism and i think this was the right way to approach 911 too is to kind of restrain our, retro, our our desire for retribution and vengeance, because we see we saw how, from an American perspective, <laughs> we lost our way after nine eleven because we couldn't think critically and carefully about our response, and we saw what that led to. And it is a bit of a cliche, but after a terrorist act, maybe not right away, but at some point after a terrorist attack, you ask. What were the conditions that made this possible or made this more likely than not? And one thing that I have been 
you know, that I think the Bush administration at that time deserves credit for, for all their other faults, and of course, the terrible and destructive invasion of Iraq, they did advance a kind of nuanced understanding of why terrorism happens, where Bush said that promoting democracy in the Middle East is the only way to fight terrorism in the medium to long term. Because if people don't have a legitimate, peaceful way to express their grievances through the democratic process, they're more likely to resort to violence. And I think that we can think in a similar way about why have Palestinians, and let's put aside Hamas, because Hamas may have decided to do October 7th regardless. Um, But when we look at the polling um, in the months preceding October 7th, we see significant majorities of Palestinians in both the West Bank and Gaza supporting violent resistance, supporting even, I, I, you know, this is unfortunate, um, attacks, armed attacks against civilians inside of Israel. So we have a couple ways we can respond to this. We can say that there's something wrong with Palestinians, that this is, a, you know, this is a violent people who have no moral compass and they just like killing Jews. Or we can ask ourselves, how is it that in the 1990s, at the height of the Oslo peace process, only 20% of Palestinians in 1996 supported violence, and the vast majority supported um, a peaceful, uh, uh, an approach to peace that prioritized a two-state solution? So something changed from the 1990s up until 2023 and when you when you deprive people of any hope for a lasting solution if you don't give them any path to recognize an independent palestinian state they're going to support terrible things they are going to support violence now that doesn't justify any of this it just contextualizes it just as we contextualize the 9 like why did many arabs too many arabs support 911 and i, I remember how some of my own relatives in Egypt after 9-11 said to me, Shadi, this is, now you get a taste of what we've gotten. You guys deserve this. And I was like, God, listen, do you realize what you're saying? Like, are, just, just, think, just think for a second. I could have just said, oh, my relatives are crazy, evil, irrational. Or I could have said that there are these grievances that have built over time that makes them lose sight of of basic morality because they have so much anger and they have so much desire for vengeance. But Shadi, let me Um, ask you a question about that because you say that if this is happening in the West Bank or whatever's happening in Gaza and, you know, you know, look at what happens in the, you know, prior to October 7th, you know, actions of the IDF in Janine and people are going to be killed. And, but, you know, there are people that are, the occupation is people very openly carrying weapons around Janine and having celebrations when people get out of Israeli prisons. There's an incredible video from last year of just, I mean, it, it looks, this does not look like an occupation. I mean, obviously the Israel, the IDF stays way back, but there's obviously a lot of violence in there and there's people plotting things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when you say, look, well, this is kind of what happens or not to excuse it, but to contextualize it. But then again, you do say that this happened in Egypt after 9-11. I mean, Egypt is not living under Israeli occupation, American occupation. I mean, like Egypt has made many concessions and actually had peace processes. And, you know, Sadat, we can go back to Sadat, we can go back to 
to you know the yeah. book milestones and go really back deep into this but this seems to be something that is carried within people that live in Europe that are second generation muslims in Bradford in the UK or people in 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 Germany people in Sweden it is across the muslim world of people that are not experiencing this directly so there's something else going on here isn't there yeah, well, I, I think the question post 9-11 is why, you know, it was kind of that classic question, why do they hate us? Why do why did some of my relatives have, yeah. I wouldn't say they hated the U.S. A lot of them were, you know, Western educated and, and liked spending time in the U.S. But I, I think that there's a broader set of grievances, one being that the U.S. has supported brutal dictatorships in the Middle East for decades. But so has every other country he, in the Middle East, right? Sorry? So has every other country in the Middle East supported dictatorships that have been bad to Palestinians but and the Jordan. US has yes. propped, so Okay, but the U.S. has propped up these dictatorships to the tune of billions of dollars in countries like Egypt and Jordan and, and so forth. And so I, it's just a broader comment on the anger that many Arabs feel that the U.S. has not played a constructive role. That the U.S. did, of course, launch the Iraq War as well. But there is a whole list of grievances, and for some countries, it's it's worse than others of overthrowing democratically elected governments, of the U.S. actually arming to the tooth the Saudis, for example. I mean, Saudi Arabia is one of the more repressive countries in the region, and the U.S. has been um, a very enthusiastic supporter and providing all the weaponry that the Saudis have to kind of keep their own population under under an iron fist. But putting all that aside, like, yeah, I don't think that doesn't, I think that it's different if we're talking about Palestinians. Palestinians have lived under military occupation, unlike my Egyptian relatives who are doing a kind of, partially at least, a kind of like anti-imperialist pose of let's fight the oppressor and America's bad, but we still benefit from American consumer goods. Some of that's bullshit. But in the case of Palestinians in the West Bank, and, you know, um, the fact that it took us some time to even mention the word occupation, I think, you know, the occupation is really at the center of this. And I probably should have mentioned earlier that um, these are longstanding grievances that have accumulated over time. So when we ask why even Palestinians, not just for putting aside Gaza, but why Palestinians in the West Bank have lost faith in a two-state solution and now are talking about a one-state solution and why they say they support militant groups, not just Hamas, but also groups like the Lion's Den and Islamic Jihad, is because we haven't incentivized them away from violence. And when I say we here, I'm talking about the U.S. and Israel. We There has been no interest in a peace process for many years now. And even when I talk about a, a two-state solution or the peace process, you got to put that in scare quotes because the Netanyahu government has been trying to thwart the establishment of an independent Palestinian state for many years now. There was that famous 2019 Likud meeting where Netanyahu actually talked about bolstering Hamas and making sure that funding came from Qatar to the Hamas leadership in Gaza because the more you could have a divided Palestinian leadership with Hamas in Gaza and Fatah and Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, that paralyzes Palestinians because you have this intra-Palestinian infighting where you basically have you basically have 
two different Palestinian leaderships. That, but that in a way helps Netanyahu make his case that there is no partner for peace. So I think that that's why you know we can we can talk about all these grievances, decades long occupation, the fifteen year land errancy blockade in Gaza from two thousand seven onwards. Fine, but for me, what all this means is that going forward, we can't return to the status quo ante. When there is a cessation of hostilities in Gaza, we have to be able to tell Palestinians that there is a path to rebuilding in Gaza, and that it's that means that they actually have to have a viable path towards their own state, and that means push, putting serious pressure on Israel to actually be okay with a Palestinian state. So we talk about how Hamas and other Palestinians don't accept Israel's right to exist, but it, um, but it's also the case that Netanyahu and his far-right companions in this government don't accept the right of a Palestinian state to exist. They just have, they're against it, and they're explicit about it. And are we going to allow that to happen? Because there's also a question of power here. Israel does have more power than the Palestinians. There's a profound power imbalance and at some level, you have to ask the most powerful to make more concessions and more compromises because they have more room for maneuver. And this is where I think some of the woke folks actually have an or critical theorists or whatever. You know, their power dynamics do matter in the end. And if Israel has one has the most powerful military in the Middle East, um, which it does, or the most advanced one. Um, then that means we ask more from Israel in terms of making compromises than we ask of the Palestinians, because the Palestinians are in a very weak position. They don't actually have a whole lot to offer Israel. Certainly, if we talk about the PA in the West Bank, Mahmoud Abbas is a weak leader who barely has any legitimacy. And what are we really asking him to do? So there has to be a good faith effort going forward on the part of future Israeli governments to say, actually, there is going to be a path towards a contiguous state where Palestinians can actually live in some dignity and actually build their own state on, you know, it might be on the rubble of Gaza, but there has to be, you can't ask Arab governments to also put billions of dollars into the reconstruction of Gaza if there isn't going to be an actual plan for the day after. I want to, yeah, I want to let Camille say, I just I did one very, very brief thing. I'm sorry to cut you off, Camille. Um, when you talk about this is how we get here, this is the, the, the occupation and all these humiliations, and they choose violence. Um, these are two-way streets. Um, you talk about the far-right coalition of Ben Gavir and these people um, and the existence of Netanyahu as the longest-serving prime minister. And what happened after the Second Intifada is that, as I mentioned before, the Labour Party in, in the left in Israel was destroyed. And that was because of terrorism. This is a two-way street. What happens in the occupation that makes um, Palestinians radical, as you say, um, there are things that happen to the Israelis that have made them radical, too. Sorry, Camille, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm happy to have you make that point. I mean, I, without conceding anything with respect to whether or not um, people who are uh, social justice advocates um, or woke people uh, have a point with respect to power dynamics, I will say that at a minimum, when you're pursuing a particular policy, like the the quality of that policy has a great deal to do with how long it can actually be sustained. 
And there does seem to be, from an international standpoint, a great deal of pressure that's being directed at Israelis now, um, the Israeli government now. Um, it's certainly the case that the current leadership of Israel is um, facing a really challenging political situation there. Um, uh, Netanyahu still currently facing some legal difficulties himself, um, let alone just trying to navigate all of this politically, given the the massive mistakes that have been uncovered with respect to them, at least having some foreknowledge that something like this might happen and not taking sufficient steps to try and do something about it. And there being real questions about whether or not the policy they're pursuing now is the best one. Um, but if I'm going to go with you, Shadi, and say, okay, fine, the Israelis need to take the first step here, what does it actually look like? Um, because there's a sense in which when I, when I read one of your columns, you talked, and you, I think you just said it again here, you talked about the status quo before um, October 7th and the importance of you know, removing the blockade and uh, pulling back uh, and granting people autonomy and freedom of movement. And that's certainly an appropriate aspiration, but the practical implications of that for Israel and its legitimate national security concerns seem to be pretty massive. At the moment, Hamas is still committed to striking, and various people within that organization continue to insist that they will when they get the opportunity. Um, in which case, as much as I, I dislike the implications of the blockade, as much as I dislike the implications of, of essentially making it impossible for people to move out of that region, um, I'm also flummoxed by the practical realities of the situation. However we got to here, um, the, the practical reality of today is if that blockade was removed tomorrow, it's almost certainly the case that aid would flow in and various other things, but also munitions and things that are likely to lead to making the next conflict, the next flare up that much more deadly on all sides. Well, the, the blockade... The 15-year blockade plus the intermittent wars, and every few years, as we've sort of alluded to, there's a new Israel-Gaza war. So clearly, returning to the status quo is not going to be good, or anything resembling it, and saying, well, there has to be a blockade, there have to be all these restrictions, Palestinians are just going to have to suck it up and live this way, that did not that was not sustainable that hasn't led to israel's security that's mm -hmm. why we're having this conversation now if we want to think more long term and also there's also the question of breeding a new generation of people who want who want to use violence against israel or yeah. actual terrorists like we know that there's going to be a lot of you know young people whose parents were killed or, par you know, parents whose children were killed who might say, well, you know, you know, they're going to be more open, unfortunately, to considering terrorism. That's, this is always the concern when you use excessive and overwhelming force and you punish a population, you're going to create a generation that has a bitterness and, and so I'll I just grant, don't see I'll how. Grant all, and, I'll grant all. But I just of don't that. see. My, so my then, question so is: then we can't go back. So then we. How do? So then. So, yeah. We, what What does moving forward look like? What can we move to? Is it some sort of international coalition that's responsible? Process. But a, a, a genuine, genuine a, peace. A, 
I, I suppose I'm granting that that there is a genuine peace process. Uh, what I'm asking for specifically is, and, and this is a hard question. I have no idea what the answer is or what an appropriate answer is. Um, but what does it actually look like from a practical standpoint? And maybe we just yeah. focus on one thing, like the blockade. Like what replaces yeah. it? Well, hopefully we can end the blockade if Hamas is no longer in power in Gaza, because that was the ostensible justification for the blockade is that there is this terrorist group that's in charge of this territory. Um, hopefully Hamas will not be in that position going forward. And then we can have a serious conversation about lifting the blockade under, say, Palestinian authority leadership. That's my preference. Um, for all of its faults, the PA seems the only viable option in a kind of post-war situ post situation. I, but I do want to note that I think your point, Camille, is, is very well taken. If I was an Israeli, I wouldn't care about any of this. Because like, from an Israeli perspective, it's not Israel's job to care about Palestinian lives. And this is where I'm, you know, I'm willing to acknowledge that. Um, but I do think it's the job of American observers to care about Palestinian lives because we have a broader interest in the region as Americans, thinking about the future stability of the Middle East, of trying to broker peace. That is ultimately going to come through U.S. pressure and commitment. Israelis shouldn't, I mean, it is kind of weird to ask in the context of a war, to ask the people who are waging the war to care about the civilian populations of of the other side, so I I totally get that, and that's why I actually I, I think that compassion in that respect though is a strategic priority if you care about safety of Israelis, because to the extent you can extend that in a meaningful way, in the long and term, people actually yeah. believe in it, it's credible. Then yes, I can imagine that that helps. The problem is, I just I don't actually know how you get from there to here right now. I think one yes, one aspect impossible. of the intractability of that. Camille is um, my sense is that Israelis are in no mood, zero mood right now to imagine either polity or either geographical group of people, Palestinians, being self-governing in the way in which they would have a monopoly on the use of force in a military. Israel is not going to allow a Hamas or terrorist run group to have a military in Gaza after this. Mm. I think But that, even a non-terrorist group. So forget about Hamas because I think we all agree here that Hamas should not be governing Gaza going forward, but even if you think about any kind of Palestinian leadership in Gaza, I think the question of whether it can have any military capabilities is going to be a live question. And that's I why mean, I I think it's it's a even worse it's a dead question. Because on, yeah. one, on one level, the Israelis can't fathom that right now. That's just not even part of it. And that's true of the West Bank as well. Like giving uh, uh, Palestinians the West Bank enough autonomy to have like a real fully fledged country and, and maybe withdraw these settlements here or whatever, uh, uh, um, uh, some kind of a separation under uh, maps that have been previously uh, authored, fine. You know, that could happen. There's two state enthusiasts in Israel or former two-state enthusiasts because there's like 12 of them left. But even those people, I think you will find like, okay, you can do that. You're just never going to have a military ever. 
going to have a military because well we maybe not ever we, but, but for the time for a really long fucking time and there and by the way no more fucking rockets like let's not just pretend the iron yeah, dome is going totally. to is going to stay there and so uh, i think that's going to be an overwhelming israeli population feeling um so that's going to survive regardless of how soon Netanyahu or whoever else falls um uh, that's going to be there for a long time. And so then I wonder, I think, I don't know anything about this. Shadi, you have a lot more uh, ideas about this than I probably would, but I kind of worry slash assume that the concept of uh, Palestinian statehood in any way that also involves, oh, by the way, you're going to be defrocked. You're going to be emasculated. You're not going to have any ability to do anything um, will be a non-starter from the people who will be negotiating that as well. And that, that's, I don't think, uh, yeah, it'll be, but I think it's something that the Palestinian side can accept. And I, 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 and I hate to say it like that emasculating thing that you're describing, it's totally understandable that Israel would accept nothing less than a demilitarized Palestinian state. Yes. And I'm willing, I mean, it's not for me to say it's up, to Palestinians to negotiate Egyptians the outcome. Palestinians what to do again. It's just fucking <laughs> yeah, exactly. Never there ends. you go. But I mean, I think realistically, it's always been sort of understood, even if it's not the quiet part isn't said out loud, that for the foreseeable future, any independent Palestinian state will be defrocked, similar in some ways to how Germany and Japan were. I think that is not ideal. I think to be a fully fledged state, generally, you should have some, you know, some kind of military capability, but we're not talking about an ordinary situation. And if I was a U.S. negotiator, I would put pressure on Palestinians if it ever gets to that point to accept that. Um, and, um, and you know, I'm sure, you know, I don't know if there's many Palestinian or pro-Palestinian activist listeners of the fifth column who will have gotten to like hour number two, but they'll, they'll probably hear that and say, oh my God, Shad, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but look, I'm also, because I've, I've been in the policy world for a long time. I try to think about what's realistic and I'm not a maximalist. And I think at some level, Palestinians are the, are the defeated party. I know we don't like to talk about that, but if you are defeated in a war, you do have to accept that things are not going to be ideal. And I hate to say that, but and it, and it, Palestinians have been defeated, and I guess Arabs more broadly. I mean, there is a long record of defeat, and at some level, you know, you got to accept the terms that are given to you. Um, that's not to say that Palestinians should ever accept the completely ungenerous offer that Trump was trying to push through. Because at some level, Palestinians have to be able to retain their dignity. You can't just say, you guys lost, you're defeated, suck it up, accept something that is not even resembling a state, forget about the military. Like, you can't say that it'll be completely non-contiguous, there'll be a bunch of Bantu stands that are just like carved up. I'm sorry, there has to be a minimum level of dignity that Palestinians are able to get as part of any peace process and two-state solution. Otherwise, you're going to see a growing number of people talking about a, a one-state solution. And in some ways, we're already there. 
One when the, I yeah. talk about a two-state solution to people, they're like, Shadi, you're in the past. Two-state solution? Are you kidding me with all the settlements that Israel has built up in the West Bank? Hundreds of thousands of settlers. How is this actually going to work? And I'm like one of the weird people who still thinks that this is actually like, because what is a one-state solution? It means undoing the Jewish state. And I do, and again, like people are going to, some people would hate me for saying this out loud, but I do believe that Israel has a right to exist as a Jewish state because that was the whole idea to correct one injustice of 1948, the catastrophe that Palestinians experienced to say that, well, we correct that injustice with another one, which means undoing a Jewish state. I'm sorry, that's also unprecedented in like modern history where you take a state and you say you have to dissolve yourself. That's fucking crazy. But isn't, that's isn't why there my, a problem, you know, you talk about the Nakba, it's the kind of, I'm not going to say myth, because it's not a myth, but I mean, th there's debates about this. And you can read Benny Morris, and you can read Rashid Khalidi and the different sides in this. But, you know, the, the Nakba itself is kind of a problem. And it's the problem that comes up in so many conversations. Because when you look at something like the war in Ukraine, you look at these places, they say Donetsk, Luhansk, these are Russian, they're Russian speakers. Dis despite that, prior to 2013, 2014, you didn't have a massive movement there of people saying we're desperate to get back to the Russian motherland and we're going to um, violently try to, try to... This is after what happens. I mean, Putin is the one that actually creates the situation after the Maidan issue. Every single conversation I've ever had about um, the Palestinian issue comes back or at some point comes to the Nakba. And the Nakba, the catastrophe, is the existence and the creation of the State of Israel. It is not just the 700,000, 700,000 people that were forced or, or were told to. We don't, you know, I'm not going to get into that historical debate. And of course, there's about 700,000, 800,000 Jews in the Arab world that are, that are throughout that period of time up until you know, the late 50s and early 60s pushed out of out of their countries too. I mean, what, there are four Jews left in Baghdad. Baghdad used to be, what, 25, 30% Jewish? I mean, so there's there's a lot of this that goes, goes around in, in the Arab world. But when that is the kind of foundational idea of being a Palestinian activist or somebody who's Palestinian, um, who cares about this, or their, their um, supporters in the West, it is that, that in 1948, this monstrous state was created, and we have to reverse the Nakba. It's like not so much this is a historical reality, it's one that has to be, and this is when you get to the from the river to the sea stuff, and, the, and why we're at this idea of a one-state solution, is people holding on to the Nakba as this thing, this historical error that must be corrected. And that, on top of the fact that, you know, the Palestinians and the 1960s and 70s were essentially secular and mostly leftist, and then become, in in certain senses, Islamist. And I, by the way, keep I, I'm going to put Fatah on that too. I'll give you an example of this. I was watching this very good PBS Frontline documentary from 2003 that was about the collapse of Oslo, and there was a guy that pops up on the screen, this kind of chubby guy from Fatah, and he's like, you know, <laughs> it's time for peace. And I got I just I you know, screen capped it. And then Googled the guy's name. Within two seconds, a story in the Times of Israel about him praising the October 7th attacks. And he's still 
in the Palestinian Authority. And of course, as you've pointed out, Shadi, this has crept in to both uh, of the of the political parties, and that's Hamas and 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 Fatah. This is a problem, right? I mean, the idea of what Palestine as a Palestinian state should be doesn't seem to me, and opinion polls seem to 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 bear this out, doesn't seem uh, one of compromise on this side. And you can say, look, how did we get here, et cetera. Yes, yes, yes. Those are debates that we can have. But let's just acknowledge that we are here. And where we are right now is not, uh, there's, there's no, I mean, this is the cliche, but this cliche is true, that there's no peace partner at this point. And, you know, the conversations about, you know, 70, 80 years ago seem to complicate that even more. I mean, you're exactly right. And, and if I, for, for many Palestinians, it, Israel being created is the, is the first, it's the original sin, it's the ultimate injustice. But I think that even if you think that, Israel is a fact on the ground. And I know this is, again, if you're an activist who's out there going to all these pro-Palestinian protests, obviously you're not in a mind to compromise because you're not a policymaker and you're thinking in, a ma- in maximal terms. Um, and, you know, not to kind of extend this analogy too much, but America was created on a certain set of pretty profound injustices and mass killing and so forth. Very few. Hold on, hold on. Few, <laughs> I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, very few oh, people. Oh, there's shouting the, the anti-American, super- hating, <laughs> hating America, in what we gave to our native brothers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the second part of that statement is that we all know that that happened, but I don't think any of these super woke people are saying that America should cease to be, and we should have like some. Uh, <laughs> well, if they are. They're crazy uh, yeah. because. Because, That's true. Uh, true. because <laughs> politics is about reality. So I get that. And so I like I can't speak to I can't speak to the Palestinian sense of grievance in a way that a Palestinian can. But I, I can but I can, I think, speak to the reality of the situation that Israel isn't going anywhere. And the sooner we all acknowledge that, the better. Mm-hmm. So we don't have fantasies about what the future might hold. I get that a lot of Palestinians would rather Israel not exist. And if they could like wave a magic wand, Israel would disappear. And I'm not going to pretend that they don't think that. What, what can I you say? Know, quick, that does, can, that's not this. Can I ask hmm. you a quick question? You mentioned um, Native Americans. Let me just ask you a broad question. I'm, I'm interested in your response to this. There's been a lot of people who have been treated horribly in every corner of this earth since the existence of this earth. Mm-hmm. Um, some have reacted different than others, right? I mean, Native Americans have reacted different than, than, than lots of people in Africa who were colonized. What is it that makes the response amongst Palestinians, um, amongst people in Iran, amongst people in, in the Mahdi army in Iraq, you go, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, what is unique when so many people have been persecuted uh, over time, that the response has been different in the Arab world. Why? I know it's a big question, but is there yeah. some kind of top line answer that you have to that? Well, the first thing I say, I think it is a point of pride among Palestinians that they refuse to accept defeat like everyone else you said who accept, who's has accepted defeat in their bad lot throughout history. I think there is a special pride 
and maybe it's too much pride and we can maybe disagree on that. And again, it's not for me to really say, but I do think that there is something different about Palestinians and the Palestinian cause where they're just like this annoying fact that's not, that hasn't gone away. They haven't kind of dissipated into the ether and just been quiet about their defeat like some others have. Um, as, as to why there's a broader resonance to it among Arabs and Muslims, I think that Israel-Palestine is not just about Israel-Palestine. It's a proxy for something deeper and bigger. And uh, Is this about Islam well, in some I, ways? Okay, so I think there there is this, um, how do I put this? There is a civilizational fault line, and I do think there is a sense of grievance that is not just about the last 75 years, but it's sort of like, we as Arabs and Muslims used to be the greatest civilization the world had ever seen, Mm. and we experienced one of the most precipitous falls in human history, a really, just a kind of, not just embarrassing, but humiliating, and I think that Israel isn't just really Israel. It represents a fall from grace. It, rep- it, it, it reminds Arabs and Muslims every day that we suck, <laughs> that we have been defeated and destroyed. By the way, that was Shadi think, who said that. It, it, yes. I'm, I'm seeing it on video, but I just want you to know that Michael Moynihan, <laughs> Matt Welch, yeah. Camille Foster, no one here said that laugh. they suck. Um, yeah. Please, <laughs> please said don't, we. Please, so. don't, please don't hurt me. Um, go ahead, here's the thing, yeah. Well, I mean, but he, let's be honest. Like we do, like we do suck. Rel- like there is, there is very something about the state that we're in. We don't really even govern our own. Like, and again, I'm doing the royal we here in a sort mm-hmm. of like exaggerated way. Like I'm born, and raised in America, you know. But I, I grew up with this, and I lived in the Middle East a big chunk of my adult life. So I, I've heard this so much from my relatives abroad, like this is part of like what is inculcated in you. It just seeps into your bones in the region when you're living there that like what happened to us? What went wrong? The famous Bernard Lewis title, you know, what went wrong? And, you know, um, and I think a lot did go wrong. And oftentimes people focus on 1967, but that's only like the most sort of intense version of it. it. It is worth noting that Arabs suck at fighting wars, especially like in the modern period when you think it's called the six day war for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was and it. so people don't even realize we say the six day war, the six day war, but we're talking about tens of millions of Arabs, including, e- I mean, Egypt, the most populous Arab state under the kind of, you know, the lion of the Arabs, Gamal Abdel Nasser, and Israel just like destroyed the Egyptian army, like very, very, it's just, it's it's one of the most you embarrassing destroyed the Air Force losses. in what, a day or something? A day and a half? In hours, yeah, in yeah, hours. Yeah. So we're, we're not just talking about like sucking at a war, we're talking about just something that is just so lopsided when you actually think about how this played out. So just like, and that's why 1967 was this kind of, it provoked this period of soul searching and just like, whoa, something really 
how did we get to this point? You guys as got Arabs? the Soviets, so I, and the Israelis got the Americans. Well, <laughs> That's what happens. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think when we want to understand like why Israel Palestine is a proxy, I think we have to look at that. There's something deeper going on, and I'm just being straight up with you guys because again, we're, if when we're on hour two, we can pretty much say things we otherwise <laughs> wouldn't say. Yeah, right, but Matt's going to um, read from the Satanic verses in about five minutes. So I'm just saying, so you, know, you might want to tell your parents to log off now. <laughs> well, it's funny. Growing up, we had a copy of the Satanic Verses like on the bookshelf, but my parents never read it. Like a lot, I think they just like got it because oh, everyone was talking about it, but it's impossible to read. It's like impenetrable, it's and just like, maybe you guys because you're very cultured <laughs> have read the Satanic <laughs> Verses, but do, no do you one. Think that very maybe they people... just they couldn't find the matches, and they were like, ah, oh, fuck it, we'll get them. To <laughs> my, we'll get them tomorrow, and then totally forgotten about I did it. Not, yeah, <laughs> I did not see that coming. That, I like that is a good like Muslim joke right there. <laughs> um, I I want to I want to pivot a little bit to talk about the the domestic political situation here in the United States, and in particular, Shadi, you wrote a piece about the forever culture war. This was in January of twenty twenty one, maybe or twenty twenty two. Two. 2022, yeah, because I can't we're, remember, but it was it was yeah, a wild 2022, yeah. and and that was primarily about the the kind of schism within conservatism, the new populist conservatism, uh, and a lot of the the not so nice things that Donald Trump um, helped to to bring to the fore um, within the conservative movement, um, but there's a different sort of culture war playing out now. Um, and a real cleavage with respect to progressives at the moment, or at least Democrats, maybe is a better way of putting it. Um, and I am I'm looking now at this catalog of things that I've bookmarked, um, people saying like pretty outrageous things on Twitter. Um, and it's a lot of both people on the it's people on the left, um, and oftentimes people on the left responding to them critically, but who are saying things uh, about, Rape allegations, for example, and who are seem like incensed that anyone would suggest that Hamas had done something with respect to kind of sexual impropriety to some of the people that they were murdering. Camille, how could you believe that people that kill children I, in front of their parents roll hand grenades into safe rooms <laughs> would rape somebody? I know. Are you joking? I know. You're right. Like, what are you and, talking and, about? And the and the, the allegation that I've seen very frequently over the course of the, the last couple of days, actually, is that there is some broader conspiracy to to dehumanize Palestinians by promoting narratives about the awfulness of Hamas and their their willingness to engage in sexual violence in addition to whatever other violence is being carried out. And for one, like the sexual violence is terrible, but for me, I don't know that it actually makes things much worse. And maybe I'm a bad person for saying so. Like, I don't know what people hope to gain by drawing this line in the sand and insisting that they won't, they won't acknowledge any of the evidence that these horrific things took place because there's some sort of weird conspiracy amongst Zionists to promote a false narrative. And it is the case that there have been things that were originally reported that turned out not to be true with respect to atrocities that were carried out on October 7th. Um, but one expects that sort of thing 
fog very of common, war, et cetera, very common that war. happens. Yes, yes. And it is entirely possible that the Israeli government could misrepresent things or promote narratives that turn out not to be true that might be favorable to them. But it doesn't seem like that's what's happening with the stuff around sexual violence. So I'm having a very difficult time understanding how some people, some of whom I know, um, who had been otherwise reasonable in other contexts, now find themselves um, being these, these like their principal issue of concern over the course of the last week has been insisting that Hamas never raped anyone and there's no evidence to prove that they did. And it just strikes me as bizarre, but it's also indicative of just how crazy our politics seems to be right now. The, the people who are in the streets who are not necessary—some, and, and again, it's not all at all. I'm not, I don't want to be categorical, but there are people in the streets who are cheering for Hamas in the United States. They're pro-Hamas demonstrations, which is yeah, very different okay. than a pro-Palestinian well, def- demonstration. Look, and I've seen both things. I haven't seen much evidence of pro-Hamas demonstrations writ large. Like not, if we're not talking writ about- large, but I've seen them in, in video of it in Philadelphia. I've seen video. Yeah, of it I here mean, in I'll, San I'll point out that the first big march in New York was named after Al Aqsa Flood. It was called Brooklyn Flood, which is you know that's indicative of a mindset of the organizers. It was Williamsburg flood yesterday or two days ago. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems, I, I suppose the point the of the idea is that is there, now, there seems to be having a, the tunnels flood in, in Gaza today. So. Well, that's literal, but, um, but there just seems to be a derangement within our politics. Like that is reticent of what I saw happening in the summer of 2020 that at that time was driving me kind of crazy. I felt like we were losing control of everything, that whatever kind of sanity there was in our polity was at risk. And I feel a little bit like that again when I look at the state of the discourse and the unwillingness to imagine that that people who you disagree with could possibly be like thoughtful, reasonable humans who believe that you are also a thoughtful, reasonable human <laughs> and are willing to have a sensible disagreement with you. And at the moment, it's just from the river to the sea – there isn't like we'll murder all of them if if someone uses a, a phrase like they're inhuman. Well, they must be referring to Palestinians writ large, or you know, in another respect, and I've seen this too. Criticism of Israel is tantamount to anti-Semitism. Like both of those dynamics seem to be playing out. But I'm curious about what you're seeing amongst people on the left, but then the broader kind of political landscape as well. Yeah. So look, Camille, there's a, there's a lot to say here. The first thing I'll say is I was really disappointed with some of the responses to October 7th. I feel like I, you know, I feel like this should go without saying, but maybe it's just like worth emphasizing that like on my quote unquote side of the political spectrum, like on, like on the further reaches of the left, there were, you know, the stuff we all know it, like decolonization, violent resistance, like by any means necessary. I saw some of that stuff and I just like couldn't believe it. And so like that, I think we're probably all on the same page in that respect. The question is why, and I want to say that I think a lot of this has been overrepresented. So people talk about like, Mm -hmm. oh, look at the left. When I think that it's very easy to take 
what are minority examples from the broader movement and make it seem like everyone is pro Hamas and that all of these people have lost their minds. And you talk about like campus politics and the fact that at Harvard, you know, these various student organizations signed that reprehensible statement excusing Hamas for October 7th. Probably like, you know, a couple people wrote those letters and it made it, but because they represent groups, you know, it seemed like, oh, look at all these student groups. But we know that oftentimes how this works is a couple people in the student group just like mm -hmm. take control and just like write something very quickly. But anyway, um, I think that there is something about the woke worldview that can that people who have been oppressed don't have moral agency or moral responsibility. And that to me is a crazy idea. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of it here that um, these people are weak, they are powerless, and therefore we don't judge them according to reasonable standards. And whatever, like the soft bigotry of low expectations, and we see how that plays out in domestic debates as well. So I think that that to me is something that made me very nervous in the beginning where I was like, oh, okay, like there's definitely a woke element here that is creating very, that is leading to taking very bad positions. Weak people have moral agency. I don't care how oppressed you are you don't kill innocent civilians. Shadi, the, the, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn today were asked in front of Congress, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? And not a single person would answer that question. I think that is what makes people think that maybe this is beyond just a few letters. Um, and also, I mean, you know, I understand that Twitter is not real life and I have to get myself out of that my, often too. Um, when I went to the protests, I saw some and talked to a lot of people that said some pretty crazy things. Um, you know, I think that during the Trump years, waiting for a single Trump person to say something um, crazy, not genocidal, just crazy. Uh, would mm -hmm. dominate MSNBC <laughs> for three days. And it's like, yeah, no, I've talked to those people too. And there, there's some real crazy ones out there and they're pizza gators do, and all this guys, stuff. Do you guys remember the dude in San Diego who like had his hand outside of his Yeah, hand? yeah, that was, yeah. And it was like- he really got yeah, fired. It's all, it's, the okay it's, it's all over. Yeah. It was, but Camille, to, to, to your question, I think that we've seen this throughout history, right? There is, a, it didn't surprise me that people were were doing this at all. I mean, throughout American history, you have, I was reading something, uh, a book that was quoted in uh, Rachel Maddow's book, um, which I'm about to let loose on, but I pulled it off the shelf. <laughs> and it was funny because it was, I saw what she was quoting. And about halfway through the book, I said, oh, there's a, a big section in here apologizing for the Moscow show trials, saying that these were the greatest things and the perfect thing for, for justice and America should emulate this. We see this all the time. And we see people taking these extreme positions to stick their finger, middle finger up to the society that they live in. It's a very particularly Western thing and going as far as they possibly can, right? And this is saying, you know, well, Hamas is, you know, not that bad. And the other thing about this is the sexual violence thing is very, very specific. Why is it this one 
that people are pushing back on so hard. Because this comes up against these shibboleths in their own community. And that's the community of people on the left. And we know what they spoke, and people have been like gloriously digging out Brianna Joy Gray tweets from a couple of years ago that are essentially like, how dare you question a victim, you know, believe women sort of stuff, but don't believe Israeli women, which by the way, does make people think that maybe there's some anti-Semitism here. Because I know that if those three people were in front of Congress and they were Harvard, Penn, Columbia, wherever the hell they're from, Brown, and they said, Do, does it violate policy on your campus to say that slavery was a fantastic American institution? They would be, you know, falling over each other to say, of course it does. We would, we would do everything mm-hmm. we could to get these people. So that is, I think, what <clears throat> instigates a lot of the idea of anti-Semitism is that why is it special for Jews that you have to recoil when somebody smashes your menorah? You you say um, in, in you know a public menorah that they have for for um, Hanukkah that we're going to not do the ceremony. We're just going to take it away. People are too excited about this. I don't think that's the case. If someone tore down a BLM poster and there was going to be a BLM um, you know speech or some sort of gathering the next day, they would cancel it. So I think that's the feeling that that Jews have that they're specially singled out on this. But it's also that when when you talk about you're the people that are knuckle-dragging 7th century Islamists that have an idea about women, about gays. This is back to the whole Queers for Palestine thing. When they, the, the responses you see to pe- from people who hold these banners and then respond on Twitter are absolutely, absolute lunacy. They, they, they're divorced from reality. And they say, no, no, well, this is what people say when they want to dehumanize and start a war, blah, blah, blah. Well, even if that were true... Yeah. Um, you cannot run away from the fact that it's not the most comfortable place to have a gay pride parade through uh, Khan Yunus or (laughs) Gaza City. It's not going to happen, right? But you can't confront that because you're trying to hold a progressive position while defending people that are the opposite of progressivism. Okay, I'm going to say a couple controversial things. Oh, so wait. bear with me as I just work through them. the Holocaust <laughs> did not happen as they said. <laughs> the number's a little high. Number is high. The a people lot. were sick. What can they do? <laughs> Always, okay. I, love, I love that um, Shadi's just triumphing in Salt Comic Dog. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Sorry, Shadi. So. <laughs> Um, okay, where was I? I lost. You my had some controversial out. things well, that you were going to. Controversial yeah. things, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. you were okay. announcing so, your last day on the Washington Post editorial <laughs> board. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't fire him. We already established that. That's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you, look, you may get a promotion yes. actually. <laughs> oh man, you guys are getting me in trouble. Yeah. Oh boy! <laughs> wow. <laughs> so we don't deny Muslims agency on this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They have the power. <laughs> okay, I just want to just—I'll just say as a, like a little throat clearing exercise. There, there is a lot of dehumanization of Palestinians and Arabs, and I have been actually like unpleasantly surprised. It's been really disconcerting to me that I've seen a, like that, and this maybe gets to I think why some of this falls along woke versus anti woke and. So I've seen a lot of classical liberals and woke skeptic folks. I think that what is animating their kind of very staunch pro-Israel position 
is that they they see Israel, whether they're totally conscious of it or not, they see it as an outpost of Western liberalism in a broader civilizational struggle. And on the other side of that civilizational fault line are like Arabs and Muslims who are illiberal and not not really down with classical liberal values. And I think there's, I think there's a lot, I don't mean to like psychoanalyze a lot of people and what's driving them. But, but for example, when Anne Hersey Ali wrote that unheard essay about why she converted to Christianity, basically she said that she wanted to be Christian to like own the Muslim, like to own like pro, like she saw pro-Palestine sentiment. She saw woke people she saw the left she saw campus politics and she's like well what like what's the opposite of that and she came to the conclusion that emphasizing judeo-christian values and emphasizing like the christian roots of western civilization was a way of taking a stand in a way that i found like confusing and sort of like weird that you would write a whole essay about converting to christianity without mentioning jesus christ like are you kidding me but like there's a lot there that we could talk about but i do think there are a lot of like an hersiali adjacent people who see this as because a lot of uh, like a lot of us who work in politics are basic we we can be tempted by political romanticism that we want to find a struggle that's worth fighting for. And I think for some people, October 7th was a reminder of civilizational stakes. And that's why I saw a lot of people after that saying that, oh, like this is moving me to the right. You guys probably saw that. Like, oh, now I know which side I'm on. Yeah, I saw it with Camille. Like, the left is here, and I'm going to be on the... <laughs> that, what? what? I missed <laughs> He said he saw it with Camille, yeah, yeah. which <laughs> is yeah. not, is not yeah. quite true. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's kind of interesting that I find myself like on the opposite side of that, where I'm actually finding myself shifting to the left more. Hmm. Not because oh, of October brother. 7th, but because of Israel's bombardment. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. You guys are, you guys are fun. Um, <laughs> so, says, wincing. Yeah. But look, it, it does, it does, like, as I said, like, at the beginning, like, it does make me wonder whether I had the right, co- obviously, I'm not, I'm not going to change my views and all the other stuff, but I wonder it does make me a little bit nervous that, uh, you know, people who were previously on my side, like, it, like it, it does make you wonder a little bit. Anyway, like, I don't want to, I don't want to go too much into that, but I do think the left does have some important insights on power dynamics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah by the way, being, a, yeah, being yeah. I just want to say being an Islamist is not being on the left, Shadi. So when you, when you've come... <laughs> When you are at the radical mosque that you've just found in Northern Virginia, that's not the left. Well, you guys, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Ted Cruz 
has like was attacking me earlier today. Yeah. Oh, was he? Days. Oh, was he? Good Back for you. Congratulations. What happened? About me being a shell for Hamas. So this what? is like a really, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, not a joke. Yeah, Good but it, I'm also like, wait, shouldn't he be being I mean, a sender? I, like, how does he I have te- time I texted to, like, him respond? that, but I didn't take it. I think he was going to take it seriously. It's like we're doing Shadi Hamid tonight and he's a bit of a Hamas sympathizer. Um, sorry, Ted. But also, I don't know if you guys saw like, but this has been going on for a while where like Mark Dibowitz and Noah Pollock, both of them were like attacking me for being pro Hamas, Hamas supporter. Mm. Um, and this has become like a normal thing that I just like see on, on Twitter when I wake up and look at my mentions, like not to, I'm not a victim or anything. Oh. I know. Like, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not, I mean, I'm fine with like, I have a thin, Wait, thick I was going to say thin skin, yeah. but it's actually thick, it's skin, thick skin that yes. I have. No, but it's a, yeah. yes. it's a sign of the shittiness of the discourse. And I would add to that, yes. I think that uh, Camille was alluding to it earlier. Um, and I think it's even come up in a congressional resolution or two. Um, there has been a, an equation uh, often with uh, people who are criticizing Israel being anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And actually, I want to ask you this question because um, um, people- Why are you anti-Semitic? <laughs> Why? <laughs> did, what? Where did they give me your you? best um, argument against the Jews, shot? No, <laughs> that's for our three. Steel man, this argument. Our three. Um, no, the uh, there's this. Uh, I, I see equated a lot by people who support Israel, and I would include myself as just sort of broadly sympathetic to Israel, even though I, I, I don't ask me to. Um, you know, pinpoint my exact civilians to Hamas ratio, which is the subject of a lot of debate over the last 24 hours. Um, and it's just grisly to even contemplate. Um, but um, uh, a lot of people say that uh, th- someone holding up a sign saying, I am an anti-Zionist or like proclaiming their anti-Zionism is the same uh, as being anti-Semitic. What do you think about that formulation? Is that true? Is that is that false? Is that open up for possibilities. I'm a little disturbed by the seamlessness of it, but I'm eager to hear your reaction to that notion. Yeah, it's a great question. It sort of dovetails with the previous point about the college presidents. So I actually have a different read and, you know, not to assume that listeners will be familiar with the hearing, but it is worth noting that Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, had like a terrible response but the question was also terrible. Mm-hmm. Basically, it was like, students are saying intifada, intifada. And then the questioner, I think Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, yeah. who's mm-hmm. like, right, yeah. And I was like, Claudine Gay, like, just fight back. And own, like, just don't accept the premise of the question. Saying intifada is not the same as a call for genocide. Intifada means uprising in Arabic. Not all uprisings are calls for genocide. Not It doesn't mean that you're supporting violence against Israeli civilians. For a lot of pro-Palestine activists, intifada is a way of just talking about res- like being anti-occupation, protest, non-violent but the intifada was a thing whatever. that killed a lot of uh, Israeli civilians. Okay, but the, fir- the first intifada was large... Was- you're, if you're talking about the second intifada, that was quite violent. The first intifada in the late 80s into the early 90s was actually like in many ways like nonviolent. There was stone throwing and 
But there were parts like general strikes. There were nonviolent aspects to it. You're saying it was mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful. Right? Yes, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. That's why I was like, I was like, oh shit, they're gonna get me on this. You know, jihad has a lot of meanings. So <laughs> <laughs> that one again, right? No, I, I, but look, if we're talking about like, yeah. but but there was a big part of it that was like mass nonviolent action in the late 1980s. So like, which intifada are we talking? And I just, I just feel like there is going to your, your point, Matt, there is this kind of, I think, very instinctual thing where people just like, anything that sounds pro-Palestinian is, in, is just immediately equated with being pro-Hamas or pro-terrorism. And we're not defining our terms clearly. I think <clears throat> it's absurd to say from the river to the sea, because I see how that can easily like easily be misconstrued and it causes a lot of pain not that i'm like going to do a safe space thing where people have a right to not be offended but part of what activism should be and this is why i tell my activist friends you want to persuade the other side so if you're going around with signs saying from the river to the sea that's not a good way to persuade people who don't already agree with you. This mm-hmm. is not about preaching to the converted. Like, make your case in the most— But ex- is it not troubling that they believe that? I know if you go carrying pictures of Chairman Mao, you're not going to make it with anyone anyhow. But if, I if, literally if, had yeah, that in yeah. mind. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean, this this reminds me of the people that said defund the police. They're like, well, we don't mean that. It's like, well, choose fucking different words. I mean, when you say from the river to the sea, there is the Jordan River— and there is the Mediterranean Sea, and in between that is Israel. And what does that mean? That means the elimination of the state of Israel, which just happens to coincide. Well, but that's not with, the same as genocide. So I want to be clear. Well, here I guess we'll just put them on 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 kayaks and and see where they end up. No, no, no. Some people believe in a binational state, like even you know, I was going to say even Peter mm-hmm. Beinart does. Oh, Peter <laughs> Beinart does not support the genocide. Gen- Sometimes he support- I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh. I'm joking. Look, joking, joking. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You know, you can be wrong about everything. I, I didn't and not mean be to be. I, I didn't. I didn't mean to do like an even Peter Beinart yeah. says. <laughs> yeah, because that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there, but there, like I don't, I don't like it myself. But there, it is a legitimate point of view to support a one-state solution, which is a binational state, and basically just to give people background, the idea there is that Jews and Arabs live in the same state, um, everyone with equal rights, the right to vote, and so forth. Maybe there could be a kind of um, confederation between, you know, like different parts of this overall state. This is not really my hill to die on, and I don't really know the arguments that well, because I think it's still sort of silly. But, you know, but but people, but there, you know, there are people like Peter Beinart who have made this case with, I think, a lot of moral courage and 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 um, clarity, and we don't have to like it, but it doesn't mean they're calling for the genocide against Jews. They're but just have for, a sign that says, one state for all, right? One state for, that's yeah, fine. That, that's what they're yeah. calling for. They're calling for equal... Yeah that Jews and Arabs are going to live side by side in the same state with equal rights, that is sometimes... You do understand, though, people, when somebody is shouting in the kefiyah wrapped around their face, as I saw, shouting from the river to the sea of Palestine and will be free, you, you imagine that people could, could get a sense that that is 
the elimination of the state of Israel. Yes, and, and that's why yes. we should. Yeah, and that's right? and that's that's why yeah, anyone sure. who's on the pro-Palestine side of things should not probably use, shouldn't do that. Yeah, probably shouldn't do that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean that any everyone. Well, they should do it if they mean it. To the sea, let them do it if they right? mean it. Yeah, well, this is the point. The point I'm trying to make is that everyone who says, like, from the river to the sea is not necessarily calling for putting, for throwing the Jews into the sea. So when you have these congressional hearings where Republican officials are trying to basically make these broad-based things, anyone who says these phrases necessarily is calling for genocide. Claudine Gay, the president of Harvard, should have said, actually— Elise Stefanik, they're not necessarily like you're you're conflating a lot of things together in a, mm-hmm. in ways that are unhelpful. But because she is a technocrat administrator who has no moral courage, she can't even defend mm-hmm. her own position. That's what made me angry. I mean, it's it's incredible. Like you knew where you were going today. You knew, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you oh knew my God, the she, questions she's you looking, were likely she's to get. She's looking at the paper. And you didn't prepare. Uh-uh. I mean, she's it's, reading it's off. Of, uh, yeah, yeah, these people are just like so lame and unimpressive. Can I can I say one more thing about the hearing before it it just yep. uh, gets away from me? The the hearing today was them bringing bringing these uh, heads of universities to Capitol Hill to force them to answer for not taking anti semitism on their campuses seriously enough. In general, a noble aspiration. Of course, the way that this actually ends up going down is what they're advocating for is literal censorship. <laughs> That's what they want. Yeah. And every every so often, they get around to twisting the knife, and they're like, well, Harvard, you're bad on free speech, so you don't get to say that the reason you're not doing anything about this is because you're defending free speech. It is certainly true that these universities are incredibly hypocritical, and that throughout the course of recent years have found every occasion where they could not every occasion, I don't want to overstate it, but I found numerous occasions where people were saying things that were sort of conventionally right of center, but were deemed completely unacceptable to the extent that they were critical of the DEI regime on campus or didn't believe in white supremacy. It was This was deemed actually racist to potentially even violent, violent rhetoric. So in that respect, they are incredible hypocrites. But it, it is also hypocritical to host an event like this, to have a hearing of this sort, to be advocating explicitly, I think, in, in many respects, for censorship of various kinds, and then chastising the people who are sitting in front of you for being insufficiently um, robust Censorious. defenders of free speech. No, yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. Camille, uh, yeah, so I yeah. Just, like... Go ahead, Johnny, sorry. I was just say just quick, like, one thing that, like, hurts me with all of this is that a lot of the people who are, like, rightly anti-cancel culture before, Mm -hmm. including a lot of Republicans and Republican officials, they're railing against cancel culture, which is good because cancel culture is bad. All of a sudden, now they just don't, these people just don't have principles. And you guys know this because like Camille has been at the forefront and I assume that you, Michael and and Matt have been too, just because you're friends with Camille. I'm literally trying to get you fired right now. This is the entire purpose of this. Wait, what have I been at the forefront of? No one has about being anti-cancel culture. Oh. And being like a very consistent, clear voice for free speech, no matter what side it is. But these Republican officials, Mm -hmm. 
when they're in the powerful position and they can use their power to censor speech that, that they disagree with, they jump at the opportunity. And it makes me wonder if any of these people had any real principles when it came to free speech. It's just like really, it's disappointing to see, but I guess we could have expected that. I mean, they're Republican um, officials. I wouldn't I wouldn't um, put much stock in, in that. I mean, uh, to Camille's point, though, you knew where you were going. I mean, this is a very easy mm-hmm. question to respond to. So easy. Incredibly easy. You can say it is not acceptable to call for the elimination of Jews, but, you know, I would take issue with what you're saying being uh-huh. a call. Like, I, I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm just saying yeah, that's what you should have exactly. said. But I'm going to go um, a little further, and I'm going to go a little further and be kind of old school here because we don't have these conversations much anymore. It doesn't matter if it is uh, Balco and the clear and people taking steroids, and it doesn't matter if it's the universities and what they're doing to police their private institutions. They don't belong on Capitol Hill. That is not the business of government to be bringing these people there to tongue lash them about anything, even if what they are doing is allowing that. What we do as parents and as donors, whether you're Bill Ackman, who who says, I'm going to take my money away from him. Great. Great for Bill Ackman. I think, you know, he's doing the right thing because it's what he believes in and he's giving them money and he's taking it away. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. If you're a parent, I made a- But he shouldn't call for a blacklist of people who signed- these really bad letters, but like you shouldn't try to ruin students' lives. Well, it's a different, so fi- it's a different firing is- someone and just saying you're not going to hire them. <laughs> starting starting <laughs> out, but not hiring them. Maybe that's it. But I will, but, I will say this. Don't but you like, guys it- think that everyone is allowed like at least like one ridiculous or terrible like position? I mean, it, like, it, it, especially if they're young. My Mine was like, I probably shouldn't have had that sixth beer and got in the car. And it wasn't, let's kill all the Jews. <laughs> so I'm in a little different no, position. I, I okay, that's not what I was yeah, talking about. Yeah, okay. no, yeah. yeah. Just so Johnny, people don't you're think saying that it's a mistake. Yes, so no, you said it was yeah. a mistake to call for the killing of Jews, but you think that everyone should get a pass once. That's what he said. said. That's what he said. <laughs> I just told the, I told the Washington Post this. And <laughs> I, I just I just emailed Kay Graham. Apparently it bounced. Apparently she's dead. But um, <laughs> Shadi, you don't have anything to worry no. about. Jeff is a friend yes. and yeah. he, he'll yeah, take care he'll of take you. I'm like, wait, who's Jeff? Yeah. Figured it out, yeah. like after, yeah. like your anti-Semitic <laughs> boss. Um, no, um, no, I just, no. I don't think this is the business no of the that. government to be um, calling people up to talk about what is happening at their private institutions. But they do, they do give these people plenty of money. They do that, directly but, and indirectly, that which is, is which is a whole other problem. Correct. That is but, part yeah. two because Harvard has the biggest yeah. endowment of anyone on earth, and they shouldn't yeah. be getting a nickel from the federal government. And that's also none, none. zero, zero, zero. Yeah. Take it all away. Guys, I have two words for you. The Calvin principles. Uh-oh. Okay. What's, what's, Google it, Camille. <laughs> okay, okay. I think that's, the uni- that's three words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, the, it, that's what I'm most it, confused about right uh, now. Camille, oh, also in listen, Arabic, it's actually it, one word. It's, it's, wow, amazing. What, that was a, that's what you sound like when you speak Arabic. I love that, I love that Michael knows so many Arabic words. I do. Sukran. <laughs> he's sukran. sharing yeah, yeah, on his, yeah. Thank you. Okay, but they're sometimes also known as the University of Chicago. Oh, yeah, yeah. The University of Chicago principles from 1967. So we did it, like, actually, I think uh, an editorial that I think I'm really proud of, and I would hope that we, all of us on the editorial board, are really proud of, (laughs) on how 
the Calvin principles, so the Calvin report, 1967, talking about how um, universities should not take institutional positions on contentious issues, but they should create a space where everyone, faculty, students, take their own contentious positions. And it's the job of an institution to create as much freedom for anyone associated with these universities to take those positions openly without wondering whether or not they're running afoul mm -hmm. of the college's position. And the University of Chicago after October 7th was very good in this. They didn't do all this posturing and preening. Mm -hmm. And they avoided a lot of the problems that these other universities got into because rightfully people like Larry Summers were like, oh, why aren't you taking a strong stand on Hamas's massacre of Israeli civilians when you took a strong stand on all these other things? But you know what? They should not have been taking the same kind of politicized stands on all those other issues beforehand. So they created this dilemma for themselves by raising expectations yeah. that on any big national or international issue, they would like issue a statement. Universities should not be issuing political pronouncements. Yep. And by the way, do you and have to be a good university, a large university? Like, is the local community college saying, this is what I think about the Houthis? I mean, where does it end? It's so dumb. <laughs> it's like, stop. No one gives a fuck. Your, your university yeah, exactly. is full of bozos like anyway. Let's just leave it at that because they're going to tweet and embarrass themselves in about five minutes. And then you're going to have to backtrack and you have to juice up the statement or minimize the statement. Just no statements. We don't care what you think. Exactly. Particularly Harvard. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Shadi, we've, we've, been, we've been holding you, you hostage. Yes. That, that, I'm not going to, that's wrong. <laughs> that is the wrong <laughs> phrase to use. Shadi, you've been our guest. Yes. Our, our guest. Yes. Uh, you agreed to do this as voluntary. Yeah. Not, Holding you against your will. We're negotiating the end of this podcast right now. <laughs> but it has been a while. I think we've been recording two, for almost two hours. Two, hours. two extraordinary, extraordinary hours. hours. Um, I want to have you come wow. back soon. Um, when you figure I, shit out. <laughs> <laughs> and realize how wrong you we are figure about it. <laughs> well, I don't. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true um, either. But no, I've I really, I've really appreciated you um, coming and sharing your perspective and um, helping the helping the class to join up a little bit. I mean, I think Moynihan sometimes he just he takes things a little too far. What are you talking about? It's important. For, exactly. What are you talking about. <laughs> okay. I just want to. I just want a free a Judean Samaritan. No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't. I have no. I will say this, this about Moynihan. Yeah. Is that what you? Call him. You, yeah, you don't call him no, Michael. No. You call him Moynihan. It's, Moynihan it's, try, it's trying to dehumanize yeah. me. That's what I. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's less gendered. Yeah. That's what it is. Exactly. Because who knows when I wake up? Some yeah, exactly. I wake yeah. up this morning. So, how do I feel? <laughs> I did another podcast with yeah. Moynihan yes. the other day, and it was the first time like we had talked Correct. directly yes. to each other. That's right. Yeah. And there was something about his voice that just like really resonated with me. Yeah. It's mm. just like very nice to listen oh, to. Yes. Yeah. I just yeah. wanted to say that I, for the record. I just want to say that I am a very, very effective Mossad psyop with my uh, malicious voice that takes people like yeah. Shadi and makes him uh, yeah. makes him one of the chosen people. You and Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say, I, great I just looked at so bad execution. <laughs> great island. <laughs> That's what I said I before. Couldn't. We get a lot of emails about that, by the way. 
We did. We got emails about that. Sorry. <laughs> and I was, I was being, I said it was a good island, just a bad execution. You want to go to the island, but you just want everyone I to- I like islands. Yeah, I love I islands, do. but I like with 25-year-olds, yeah. not with like Alan Dershowitz well, and a 12-year-old. With, with, with my wife exclusively. <laughs> Can we call this episode clear. Alan Dershowitz and a 12-year-old? <laughs> why not why look not? i also guys i just wanted to say that when you said that we had been going for two hours i looked at my clock and i actually i thought you guys were exaggerating but we, we have been going two yeah. hours, and yeah. it's just like it's a it's a testament to how awesome you guys that it didn't feel like that that's true it's like time really i lose my sense of time when i'm talking to the three of you well yes. you come so you come I, back I just, and we'll do three hours next time right? yeah. that's right <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, like all jokes aside, like thank, like thank you for having me. It really is an honor. You guys are awesome. I love what you do, and you, you know, hope hope to do it again Absolutely. sometime soon. Thank Let's you. Do it very much. We, we will know of new methods of attack. The Trojan 